Kira, and welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by the Auckland Faculty of the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners. I'm Dr. Louise Kugler, a specialist GP, and today I welcome Megan Ogilvy to discuss women's libido, menopause hormone treatment, and testosterone supplementation. Megan is an endocrinologist. She works both at Auckland District Health Board and Fertility Associates in the area of both general and reproductive endocrinology. She has particular interests in PCOS, energy deficiency in athletes, amenorrhea, menopause, and gonadal dysgenesis. Megan is an Auckland graduate and specialised in endocrine training here in Auckland. She undertook her postgraduate training in London. Welcome, Megan, to the podcast. Thank you, Louise, and thank you for asking me to come and talk to you today. So, Megan, we're discussing both libido, MHT, and testosterone supplementation today, but I wonder if we can just start with a recap on women's libido and the changes to libido over the lifespan. I think it's really important to talk about libido before we move on and talk about any supplementation, mainly because women, to make a generalisation, are much more complicated in terms of libido than men. There's so many different influences on women's libido. It is very fragile and it's always the first thing to go if things aren't going right elsewhere. And I think that women want to talk about libido and I think that most women are relieved that you ask the question. It's a bit like asking a menopausal woman about vaginal dryness and irritation you know, many women won't bring that up, but they're relieved when you do ask. And if they say, no, this isn't a problem for me, then you can just close that door, move on and talk about something else. So I think it's important to bring the subject up because many women don't feel brave enough to bring the subject up. The other thing with libido is that it's not really something that women get around and talk about with a glass of wine. So the only person that that woman mainly talks about libido with in a heterosexual relationship as their male partner. And testosterone is a very dominant hormone for libido. So men don't really understand that multifactorial nature of women's libido. So many women come to see me and say, my partner says there's something wrong with me. I have to sort this out. This is my problem. And I think they're very relieved when I tell them how many times I talk to women about libido on a weekly basis. And in fact, actually, there's nothing wrong with them. And it's, it's a very, very common thing for women to experience. And I think the thing to remember is to not feel pressured as to what's right or wrong. What brings up the problem is the difference between the couple in libidos. If everybody's happy with where they're at, then there isn't a problem and there's nothing to consider or treat. And ignore all those pressures out there that are on social media and advertising about what the right libido or right amount of sex to have is. If it's right for the two of you, then you can just carry on. I think there's lots of things to consider when it comes to women's libido. Hormones are part of it. In truth, hormones are probably only a little bit of it. And I get lots of women actually who have really good success with a psychologist who specializes in this area. There's lots of different pathways that women can use. But hormones are part of this. If periods are regular of hormonal contraception, then the reproductive hormones are normal. 
But if women have lost ovarian function, then they've generally lost their estrogen and they don't have quite as much testosterone around as they did when they had functioning ovaries. It's important to think about the pelvic floor, any sexual pain, superficial or, or deep, none of us want to do what's painful. And is there a degree of vaginismus there as well? So asking about sexual pain is also really important. Mood and where women are at mood-wise, anxiety is absolutely toxic for libido and um, low mood also doesn't do it any favours. And I think probably all your listeners know the SSRI group of medications, one of the side effects can be sexual dysfunction and lowered libido. So knowing where that woman is at mood-wise and with anxiety also can help build this picture. I often talk about self-confidence. I think you're going to ask me down the track when women present, but the most common time that women present is over menopause. And it's the time that perhaps weight has changed, body composition has changed, they're feeling a bit anxious or low, and self-confidence can really take a hit over that time. And self-confidence can also affect libido. Having a space to have sex and be intimate is also important, and that can be somewhat difficult. Uh, If you've got teenage children or children that have returned to come home again, Uh, But that's important. And of course, any negative sexual experiences in the past can also impact on libido now. I often also talk to women about lifestyle management. I quote Helen Coniglin, who unfortunately has retired now, but she was a very good uh, sex therapist in the Waikato. And she talks about the fact that The most important thing to maintain anybody's libido is to change your partner every two years. And so I say to my patients, of course, none of us really want to do that. But having an affair with your partner every two years is a way of improving your libido. And if you think about the effort you would put into having an affair and what you would do It's totally different to running a family, running a house, the drudgery of going to the supermarket, all those everyday things that we all do, and we forget to put the effort into our relationship and our our partners. And often when I say that to a patient, they'll say, oh, yeah, I I haven't really thought about that, or I haven't paid any attention to my relationship. And so that helps open some doors for them as well. So there's lots of things to think about. So thank you for that, Megan. That's a fascinating insight. And the two yearly affair is something I'll store away. Um, So I wonder now if we can move on with a brief recap on why women need testosterone and what happens to testosterone levels over a woman's lifespan. Testosterone doesn't really do what estrogen does. Testosterone peaks in your early 20s and then starts to gradually decline. Uh, over the reproductive years. And then interestingly, some recent data from Sue Davis, who's done all of the literature and the studies in this area, suggests that it picks up again in women's late 60s or or 70s. I don't know that we know a lot more about that. But there's typically, in my experience, two common times over women's lifetime that they present concerned about libido. One is when they tend to have young children and there's so much going on for them and young children are so physically demanding 
that by the time you get to 9.30 at night and you're exhausted and you've done your day, the thought of giving to somebody else is difficult. And if those women have regular periods of hormonal contraception, testosterone is going to be normal for them. So they're better helped in some other way. But the menopausal transition, whether women lose their ovarian function early or they lose it at the more uh, common time of between 45 and 55, is a time that uh, libido can become very much a discussion point um, for that patient and can drop away. And so sometimes we use testosterone in that situation. The evidence all sits for using testosterone around libido and hypoactive sexual desire disorder. There is no real evidence for using testosterone for any other reason. Some women will tell me that it helps with energy levels, but that's very anecdotal. That's not evidence-based. So you've just mentioned some of the current indications for testosterone supplementation, and they are quite specific. So there's been a position statement, I understand, that's been a global consensus position statement. Can you tell us about this and why it came about and why it was needed? So that was driven um, mainly by Sue Davis, and many people from all over the world got together to write the consensus statement. I think this is a difficult area. It's a difficult area to get studies in and it's there were lots of people across the world doing all sorts of different things it's also an area ripe for picking with the alternative hormone therapists who are making up compounding creams and women were getting into trouble with those in fact Stella and I published a couple of cases uh all oh, about 10 years ago now with Rona Levenberg uh, with somebody who presented with significant acne and male range testosterones from hormonal compounded testosterone cream. And the other woman presented with muscle hypertrophy and clitoromegaly with, again, male range testosterone levels. So women can absolutely get into trouble with compounded products. And the global positions consensus statement was really an attempt to try to standardize what's being done out there and what's being used. So the result of this statement, the indications you mentioned are quite specific. So can you just elaborate on those again? So the, men, the indications are postmenopausal women. And I would just highlight to you that that really means women without ovarian function. So premature ovarian insufficiency women and really also it would, would be the same for women with pituitary disease and hypopituitarism as well because they have lost ovarian function and postmenopausal women. So for women who fall into that bracket and have something called hypoactive sexual desire disorder. Now, I know we need labels and it's important for consensus statements and guidelines and studies. But I actually don't love that term and I don't ever use that term with a patient because it implies there's something wrong with that woman and she already thinks there's something wrong with her by the time she gets through to see me. And I don't think it's particularly helpful. I think that libido concerns for women are so incredibly common that there'd be something wrong with half the population if you really believed that. So Megan... How commonly do women present to you and what do they say? Because often 
my view of someone's low libido and their view of a low libido can be quite different. So what is it that we need to ask? And what is it that makes loss of libido significant? Yeah, I think that's a really important question. And I think understanding what women are talking about is really helpful. So if somebody is discussing the fact that her partner wants to have sex every day, but perhaps she only wants to have sex two or three times a week, that is a different problem to somebody as they started to change periods, get hot flushes, lack of sleep, and actually they have zero interest in anything sexual and it's causing problems in their relationship. They're two quite different presentations and helped quite differently. So under the first question I find really useful is with the power of retrospect, how long do you think that that libido change has been going on for? And again, if somebody says, actually, my whole life, I've never had any sort of uh, libido or sexual feeling, that is again different to after my children came along or as I started to become menopausal. That's great. Thank you for clarifying that, Megan. So the sorts of questions that we should be asking women can be a bit tricky if we're not used to these. So what are your tricks with asking these personal questions? So for menopausal women, alongside my questions about the different symptoms, flushes, sweats, sleep disturbance, mood, I ask them all about vaginal dryness and irritation as well. And then it's easy to move on and say something like, dare I ask about libido, how is that going for you? And generally that will give a small sort of smile and then, and then you can, if she says there's nothing wrong, you can just move on. But so commonly women will say, oh, yes, I don't have any libido either. And then you can say, well, how long do you think that that's been an issue for you? And then when that woman gives me a time frame, I've got something to work with because I can ask her, okay, well, let's go back to when you had a regular period or before you had children. And what do you think is different between that time period and now? And most commonly, women will say to me, well, I used to want to initiate sex because I actually wanted to do that. And now I couldn't care less. I don't actually care whether I never have sex again. It's amazing how often I hear that statement. But also that will pick up, well, actually, sex was never painful and now it is. Yeah, so, so you get a feel then for what women are talking about and what's changed for them. So we've opened the box what do we do now (laughs) um thinking perhaps we need to do some investigations do we need to do some investigations do we need to measure testosterone and if we do which testosterone do we measure so i think that you need to decide that your woman has lost ovarian function first then yes i think a testosterone level is important and we do total testosterone You've got to understand what you're measuring. So this is only a rough guide. The testosterone assays aren't particularly accurate when we get down to the little bit of testosterone that women have. So you're really measuring it to make sure that it's not three or four and you're giving women testosterone unnecessarily. And then you're also measuring it so that you can follow it and know that it's going up a little bit. But you need to understand that there's probably not much difference in the assay between a testosterone of 0.5 or 1 or 1 or or 2. But it is important to have that data to start with. It's also important to know that she has had a full blood count. 
because of the tiny risk of polycythemia, liver function tests and euthanase, I think is a very standard screen for us. Do we need to think about lipids if we're then thinking about supplementation or lipids is not part of a assessment? I think lipids would have to be particularly high before I declined testosterone. And we very rarely see that in the sort of patient that we're talking about. I wouldn't have turned anybody down on their lipids. Okay, great. Thank you for clarifying that. So we're thinking about managing this woman. Is there a stepped approach to management? And if so, what does it look like? Yes, there absolutely is. So hormone therapy being estrogen and progesterone replacement, if it is required, is a very evidence-based, clear medication for women who are suffering with menopausal symptoms. And it's absolutely the place to start. Because very typically, if you can get women a decent night's sleep, if you can stop them flushing every time they're touched, if you can improve the genitourinary syndrome of menopause and stop the superficial dyspineuria, and you can improve the mood and anxiety, then libido often will improve for quite a large number of women in that situation. And so I always aim for that presentation to start women on hormone therapy first, give them the information about testosterone replacement at that first appointment and say, you go away and read about this and have a think about it. Come back and see me in three months. We'll see where you're at with the hormone therapy. And then if you want to talk about testosterone after that, we can. And maybe about 40% of women who come back to that three-month appointment after that kind of answer to the first one will say, yes, I'd like to have a look at testosterone a little bit further now. And then I use Androfen, which is the only testosterone product that is available across the world at the moment that is designed to deliver standardized doses of testosterone for women. Uh, and it comes in from Western Australia. It's not registered for use in New Zealand. It comes in under Section 29. But it's widely used across the UK and the States and Australia at the moment. And how does a woman use Androfem? Androfem is a tube of cream. It's a pretty pink colour. Very stereotypical. It comes with a, a syringe applicator. And you fill the syringe up to half a mil and you place half a mil on your outer thigh or inner arm last thing at night. The most common thing that I find monitoring these women is that they do really well. And then suddenly I see a testosterone of eight or nine and two things have happened. Either they have had applied it to their arm and had a blood test over that site of application or they've got sick of the syringe, which is fiddly, and they've thrown it away and put a bit on their finger. So it is really important to monitor these women moving forward to be careful about that. By the way, it's also important to monitor these women because if they do come back to you at three or four months and say, this isn't working for me, you want to know that the testosterone has got up to a reasonable level, by which I really mean just above the upper limit of the normal female range, I would accept a testosterone of about 3.5 or maybe four. I might be starting to pull it down a bit at four. And if that woman hasn't got any libido response to a testosterone of 3.5, I don't think androgen is going to work for them. 
So I tell women to rotate the sites of application to minimize the side effects. If you apply it at the same site every night, then you do get a little patch of hair growth that grows at that site. So move the sites around. And I warn everybody about the possibility of cross-transference. So there has been some cases in the literature of mum putting it on her inner arm and then going and hugging the same child every night in the same way. And then the child presents with high testosterone levels. That woman's male partner has so much testosterone, it doesn't make any difference to him, but it can make a difference to the child. And then it's going to take about four weeks for that testosterone to start to have a clinical effect for that woman and then uh, effects peak at about 12 weeks. And so that's a reasonable time period for that woman to say, yes, this is worthwhile doing all of this, or actually it's not for me. And the studies show about 60% of women have, you know, with the best will in the world of pulling out women who are better having their sexual pain treated or seeing a psychologist or a marriage counselor, we're still seeing about a 60% response rate. And that would be my experience as well. If we lost access to androfen, some women would be very upset by that and others would shrug their shoulders and say, oh, well, who cares about that? So I warn women a 60% response rate. And I also set expectations. And I think this is quite important. Again, I quote to women that the studies show that a positive response is defined as one to two more satisfying sexual experiences a month. And understanding that and understanding that this product is not a swinging from the chandeliers, amazing sex every day, uh, helps women get a feel for what's expected and what's seen as a success. So setting expectations is quite an important part of prescribing. And reminding women that lifestyle management needs to be part of this. You know, you don't prescribe duramine for weight loss and not talk about exercise and fitness and food management. Androfen needs to be um, prescribed and a discussion around making time for sex, diarizing sex, um, making time to enjoyable time with your partner is really important alongside the androfen. And Megan, what about monitoring? How often you say you follow women up at about the three-month mark? Are you then repeating bloods and what have you at that time? Yeah, so I give women a three-monthly blood form to do testosterone levels using these liver function tests and full blood count. And our group require three-monthly bloods on an ongoing basis to prescribe. I do note, though, that Sue Davis is talking about six-monthly bloods on her webinar for the Australasian Menopause Society website. Perhaps it depends on your patient a little bit. Once you know that somebody has understood what they're supposed to be doing with the androfem and they're reliable and all is going well, we say three-monthly bloods, and in truth, we probably get them four to five-monthly, I guess, for most people. But follow-up's really important. So you mentioned it's a Section 29 medication. So is it subsidised at all or is it at full cost for women? Uh, no, it's not subsidised. What we do is write out a prescription and we fax it through to uh, Bayswater Pharmacy in Browns Bay. And then they contact the patient and deal with the patient directly. 
costs are $110 a tube, including the courier fee, and they will courier anywhere across New Zealand. And I'm not aware of any other pharmacy bringing in androgen, but I would love to be corrected on that. Historically, prescribing has been low of testosterone. In a 2009 Cochrane review said that there's good evidence that adding testosterone to hormone therapy has a beneficial effect on sexual function in postmenopausal women. So why do you think there's such a hesitancy to prescribe? Louise, I would love more GPs to be prescribing menopausal hormone therapy than uh, actually are out there. Um, Some GPs are doing a really great job prescribing MHT and some are just not prescribing it for a very straightforward, not overweight, 50-something-year-old woman who has no risk factors. And I would love that to happen first. Then if we can get GPs prescribing androfem, I think that that's fantastic. I think that the Women's Health Initiative trial hasn't done women any favours at all uh, and has made people unnecessarily scared and anxious about the whole world of hormone therapy. And I think there's a whole generation of women that are suffering because of it. I totally agree. And, you know, I see women coming in who have found me because I'm prescribed MHT a lot. And, you know, three months, six months down the track, their lives have changed. They've gone back to work. Their relationships are fine. And it is relatively straightforward, especially in those simple women. I totally agree with you. So, yes, we need to get people confident doing that again. A very satisfying thing to treat, Mm. isn't it? Because women feel so much better. Absolutely. So thinking about um, side effects for a moment, uh, you mentioned hair um, growth in the places of application, but are there any other side effects that we need to be aware of? So you can sometimes get a bit of acne and generally more of an increase in body hair rather than specifically hirsutism. I would be absolutely horrified if my patients got any more side effects than that because it means that we're not monitoring them properly. So if you look at the list of side effects, clitoromegaly, voice deepening, muscle hypertrophy, you really have to get testosterones up to seven, eight, nine. I mean, that's our trans men levels of testosterone to get those kind of side effects. I never see that with properly applied and monitored androphen. I just wonder, before we wrap up today, you mentioned earlier on about the cases you'd had with compounding testosterone. Mm -hmm. I just wonder if you could just make a comment about compounding testosterone and if there is ever a place, in your opinion, for compounded testosterone. Not that I've found so far. Um, uh, No, I don't believe that there is because there is too much variability in doses and too many concerns around problems with women. I mean, what we don't have really nice data on with regards to testosterone is concerns around longer term risks. Are we changing breast cancer risk? Are we changing heart disease risk? And are we changing endometrial cancer risk? Now, I actually asked Sue Davis that question um, before COVID. And she talked about a study that she did where she got permission from Australia's prescribing bodies to get access to every 
person that she had written a prescription for Androfem for over the years, and she contacted all of them and put their breast cancer rates beside the average Australian breast cancer rates for women and found absolutely no difference. And she told me we were never going to get better data than that. So that's pretty reassuring, but that's also testosterone prescribed as I've just described to you, not higher levels of testosterone, which almost certainly is in compounding testosterone cream. And um, I just think that it's unregistered and it's not monitored, and I think it's dangerous. Thanks for clarifying that. And then my last question relates to breast cancer. So should we be screening these women if we are prescribing testosterone? Should they be on an annual mammogram? Not particularly. Uh, I mean, you'll often be prescribing estrogen as well. And so that might change the way you approach things. Uh, but for the premature ovarian insufficiency women, they don't need any more mammograms than would be generally recommended. Menopause women, I think it's up for debate as to whether they need yearly or two yearly mammograms, and often their other risk factors come into that as well. But testosterone alone wouldn't make me increase the frequency of the mammogram. Perfect. Thank you. So hopefully we've raised some interest amongst our GP colleagues for prescribing testosterone, but if they were wanting more information, where would you suggest we direct them? So the American Endocrine Society has written some open access guidelines on androgen replacement in women. They are really helpful. And on the Australasian Menopause Society website, there is also an open access webinar of Sue Davis, who talks a lot about this particular subject and talks very sensibly. And her webinar on that website is really useful. Excellent. Well, thank you for your time today. And just to conclude our podcast and take home messages for our listeners, please, Megan. I think that you need to think about libido first. And I think you need to think that libido is not just about testosterone and understand what's going on for women. I think that if women have lost their ovarian function uh, for whatever reason, then testosterone is a very reasonable trial of treatment for them. But if you use testosterone, you need to use an appropriate product and you need to monitor and follow those women up. Wonderful. Thank you, Megan, for your time today. It's been a pleasure talking to you. If you're a New Zealand GP, you're able to claim CPD points for listening to this podcast, so please log them. And you'll find a list of resources, uh, including the webinar that Megan mentioned on our website, goodfellowunit.org. Thank you for listening. And thank you again, Megan.